I am happy to announce that the winner is All About Eve. Parasite. Kramer versus Kramer. Chicago! West Side Show. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. One flew over the cuckoo's Shakespeare in Love. May I have the envelope, please? It is April 15th, 1971. We're at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in beautiful downtown Los Angeles, honoring the films of 1970 at the 43rd Annual Academy Awards. And it is time for the big award of the night. The envelope, please. Zooby dooby doo. The winner is Patton, Frank McCarthy. I mean, like, it seemed obvious from the word go that this is the way it was going. (laughs) It really did. I feel like 1970 is just one of those years where it was all kind of packed up and decided and bundled away long before it started. I I feel like so much so that I'd read somewhere that barely any of the nominated performers bothered showing up this year <laughs> kind really of makes sense i guess because they yeah. were like i'm not gonna win anyway so why i um, think yeah all the winners were kind of like foregone conclusions it seemed like even mm-hmm. george c scott who ended up um turning down the oscar um which was the first time this happened by the way here's one of the firsts for the ceremony it's the first time an actor refuses his or her oscar um, yeah. And there's a quote um, that they actually quoted George E. Scott in saying that the reason he turned it down is because he called the Oscars a two-hour meat parade, a public display with contrived suspense for economic reasons. And let's be clear here. He's not wrong. <laughs> he's, not, <laughs> he's not totally incorrect. It's just that some of us enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We do you know? love watching them. Profit we are totally aware of what we are watching. We are complicit <laughs> yeah. and aware of what it is that we are participating in. A hundred percent. Shamelessly. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, last night I had the question um, because I was watching this movie and I saw, of course, the note that very famous note of George C. Scott refusing his award, which, you know, he also technically had refused his nomination, and he mm-hmm. refused his nomination for The Hustler um, when he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor as well. Um, yep. He was very anti-Oscars, um, although he was very excited about his New York Film Critics Award, and he he accepted that and said it was the only one he thought was worth anything of all uh, the awards. Because it comes from the critics. <laughs> I guess he, yeah, well, I guess that, that makes sense. I, I mean, I, I guess that. so. Who knows? Um, you Who know, knows? but uh, but a couple of a little interesting notes here. First of all, I, um, I, I in recent times have um, been uh, uh, looking at, I don't know if this sounds morbid, but um, I have <laughs> spent some of quarantine visiting cemeteries in Los Angeles. Oh, we've gotten um, to that point. That's where we're at. Yes, that's where we're at. Because there are a lot of famous people buried in cemeteries around L.A. And it is very easy to access 
those um, graves. I mean, you know, because they're just public cemeteries. And so in Westwood, at the Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery, it's the same place where uh, Billy Wilder and uh, Carl Malden, actually, um, and uh, Marilyn Monroe, um, uh, Hugh Hefner, right beside Marilyn Monroe. Um, lots of famous people there. George C. Scott's there, and he is he is buried. I mean, of course, if when I say this, you will say, like, of course... He is. He's married in an unmarked grave. So it's just a headstone what? without his name in a, on it. Really? And that's, uh, yeah, and that's in the Westwood Cemetery. Um, oh, that seems... I don't know why. That just seems odd, right? <laughs> it does, as big of it? an actor as George C. Scott doesn't want his name on his tombstone. Do you think... Do you think it's uh-huh. because maybe George C. Scott kind of like george Patton, who he played believed in like reincarnation or some kind of life hereafter where he thought maybe it was kind of pointless to have a tombstone in the first place i don't know this is just pure conjecture i'm just i mean wondering i'm if... thinking it maybe just goes into his entire like the same reason he refused the oscar he's not into the i don't know into mm. the recognition or something sure interestingly yeah. he's not the only famous person buried in that very i mean like this is a star-studded cemetery and it's not very big either uh-huh. i mean it has donna reed and burt lancaster and uh zha, zha gabor and like yeah. um uh, a couple of the beach boys and um uh, uh, uh what's his face colombo um why can't i think of his mm-hmm. name peter falk uh, um yeah. and uh anyway so oh jack lemon um, who has the funniest grave because his says Jack Lemon in and then that's it. I'm a boy. I'm a, I wish I were dead. I'm a boy. I'm a boy. Oh boy, am I a boy. <laughs> but oh, I um, love that. That's great. Roy Orbison, the singer, is also uh-huh. buried in that in that cemetery and he has an unmarked grave and you can't he doesn't even have a gravestone he's just in this specific plot of land and if you know where it is that's that's all you know because um he was he was only supposed to be buried there temporarily okay and then no one ever uh and then he was going to eventually go somewhere else and so they never bothered to put a, a grave marker on there and so he's just buried there unmarked he was always intended to go somewhere else and get a gravestone in another place but he just stayed in westwood so he's buried in westwood without a gravestone because wow he wasn't supposed to be there um that's so bizarre it's so yeah there's a couple of famous people at unmarked graves in this westwood cemetery which is kind of it's in between a few buildings and so it's kind of like tucked away you don't see it from the road Mm-hmm. Um, mm. highly recommend the visit though it's very interesting Sounds um, great. but what I was going to say was none of this um, <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> the entire reason I brought up George C. Scott and uh, and his his Oscar kerfluffle of refusing refusing the Oscar um, is uh, he Apparently, the Oscar is now... Last night, my question was, where is uh, George C. Scott's Oscar? Because even though he refused it, because he wasn't at the ceremony, they went ahead and printed 
you know, his name on it and everything. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the, the protocol is that you're going to try to send it to the guy, right? And right. Uh, they ended up... Um, they ended up putting it at the George C. Marshall Foundation Library at the Virginia Military Institute. Wow. So that is where his um, Best Actor Oscar is currently located. And I want Hmm. all of our viewers to put a a pin in this conversation because in two years, I have more information about an Oscar that was refused at a different... Hmm a different best actor who refused Mm -hmm. an Oscar in two years. And the story of where that Oscar went is even more twisty and turny and interesting. So get excited Mm. for 1972. Dum, dum, dum. Dum, dum, dum. Okay. Um, Um, Do you have any snubs for this year? I actually don't have any snubs for 1970. I have one Um, small one. Okay. What's your snub? I would have nominated... Uh, Carl Malden for Best Supporting Actor. And how does he, who spoke up without fear against every evil, feel about your silence? Tell him about that! You know, I thought about that. I did think about that. And ultimately, I decided no. <laughs> I mean, it's on to you. I just I just thought he was... <laughs> I, uh, I love that, though. I I mean, like, I as we have established in the past, I, I have uh, a love for Carl Malden. Mm-hmm. And sure. any opportunity I have to nominate him, I'm going to. But it's not like he doesn't have an Oscar, so. True. You know, yeah, I fine. see that. Yep. Um, That's great. Wait, what did he? What did he win for? Now I'm forgetting. So he won for Streetcar. They told me to take a streetcar named Desire. That's right. He won for Streetcar. Thank you. Yes. 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 Um, but other than that, I mean, I I'm just going to be really honest going into this year. This is the first year in a while that I feel like I don't have any stakes in this situation. Um, yeah, like, I mean, there are I don't a lot of movies. have strong feelings. True, there are a lot of movies, especially if you look at the Best Picture lineup, where I'm like, airport doesn't need to be here. Is there any chance that the, that the plane would stand the explosion? Oh, she might still fly. I don't think Love Story needs to be there. Love means never having to say you're sorry. MASH, I kind of get, because it's kind of like an a very new progressive type of comedy for 1970, but ultimately I still don't think that's a best picture quality film. Let me ask yeah, you a question. A... Okay. Um, if... I, I Okay. I'm going to ask you a two-part question. Mm, okay. All right? Layers, um, I love it. First off, if Airport had not spawned <laughs> three sequels of diminishing quality... And then inspired the much more popular spoof film, Airplane. Mm-hmm. Do you think that you would look at it differently or its reputation would be different? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I, no, I don't. I feel like I would still look at it the same, you know, it's because I feel like, you know, when they made Airport, they didn't know all of that was going to happen. So they were making it as like a standalone film. And that's kind of how I view it. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, which is a I, I would say semi mediocre yeah. okay disaster film. That's about all it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think like that <laughs> I think it was just the first of its kind. Definitely, um, the fact yes. that it was the first all star disaster movie, mm-hmm. um, and oh, yeah. so of course it ended up doing great uh, because you know you got 
all those huge names in the movie Mm -hmm. and um and they're all on a plane together (laughs) so i mean you know of course it's gonna do well bring that plane down no exactly and what you said it's pleasant and diverting and it's not it doesn't tax the viewer too much no it's pure entertainment right it's the big blockbuster runaway film that sneaks into the oscar race for that exact reason it's gonna happen many times in the future with other you know films but looking back it's like eh, best picture no not at all yeah but i see i, why it's I agree with that okay now yeah, here's the second part of the question okay in a similar vein mm-hmm. what do you think the fact that mash was followed by a television adaptation that ran for 11 years became one of the most popular tv shows of all time had mm-hmm. the highest rated finale of all time um very famously uh do you think that the movie has been outshined, outshone by um, the fact that it spawned this TV series? I think so, because I think the TV show is funnier and does... I think it's funnier, but only because it's allowed to be longer. You know what I mean? We can have more time with these characters episode episode season to season whereas mash the movie but also this is just a stylistic robert altman type of way he crafts his films you're you're very much just thrown into it no explanation of anything or who these people are and you just kind of listen in right a lot of his movies are overlapping dialogue a lot of characters doing a bunch of different things there's no real like plot structure right this is i think the shining example of that um so you are kind of more of a, I don't know, you're kind of left on the outside a little bit when you're watching the movie, but when you watch Match the television show, you do get immersed in these people's lives, and you see them on a weekly basis, right? So you get used to seeing these people, which is why I think the show, in my opinion anyway, is more successful in that regard. And Isn't also I think Mash the film yeah, is, incredi- is incredibly misogynistic now looking back and uh homophobic as well so i just have issues with the content of what was passable in 1970 and is very much not acceptable (laughs) in today's eyes um yeah i would agree i would agree with that i think the i i think you know i i can't say that i have i was a regular viewer of the tv show mash my parents absolutely love the tv show mash um Mm -hmm. And so I, I, most of what I know of the sh- series is through osmosis. But what I have seen of the show is kind of like a, a, an incredible, like a very um, progressive sitcom mm-hmm. in its viewpoint. You know, it, an incredibly well written, layered. The comedy has drama in it, and uh, it, it's uh, it deals with some real issues, other than the fact that the Korean War lasts forever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 11 years for some reason Um, but uh, what I think is really interesting is that you know these characters um, that are introduced in this movie you know like uh, uh, for instance uh, Sally Kellerman plays Hot Lips and first they call me a Hot Lips and you let them get away with it and then you let them get away with everything you know Mm-hmm. And yep. and gets nominated for best supporting actress, but Loretta Swit, who plays the part of the TV show, 
is the one who's going to be remembered for playing that character, you know? Right. Totally. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, of course, uh, Donald Sutherland um, will be remembered for many things. And he's, uh, I mean, he was just in The Undoing um, recently. Um, mm-hmm. So he's had a long and an amazing career. And uh, we will talk about him with one of our favorite movies in 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, saying ahead of time it's one of our favorite movies i'm assuming that we both love okay good uh (laughs) best picture winner (laughs) um but uh but alan alda who plays the part on television you know ends up being the uh i mean like his his entire career ends up being built off of this tv show mash and goes into all these other places but um i don't know i just find it i find it interesting that we have these two best picture nominees that spawn series of their own kind mm. one a film series one a movie series uh, one a tv series and i think that those series end up being something bigger than the movie that's nominated for nominated for best picture this year yeah you're right just you a thought absolutely I mean, right I don't know if that's I, that's something I'm highlighting this year, but um, since I just said the word highlight, Sam. Ooh. <laughs> spotlight. <laughs> I love it. This is great. I'm excited to talk about this, actually. There's a movie that I've been waiting to spotlight until this year. Um, okay. I want to talk about Women in Love, which took oh, home Best Actress goodness. for Glenda Jackson. Have you seen this movie? I Have you seen this cannot movie? say I've seen Women in Love. I'm very, very sorry because I wanted to try and watch it for this week, but I just didn't get around to it. But I do know um, the the it's Ken Russell, right? Uh-huh. Who did um, the really? We'll get we'll talk about this in a couple of years. But I've seen uh, the the Who movie. What is it? Um, uh, oh yeah. Um, uh, uh, oh, Tommy. I can't think of it now either. Tommy, uh, yes. Tommy, yeah. And so I have an idea of what his style is. So I'm interested to say to hear oh, what boy. You this movie. And there is a style. Yeah, this movie is definitely stylistic. Um, okay, so for our listeners, Women in Love is about um, a woman named Glenn uh, Goodrun. Her name is yeah Goodrun. Yeah, played by Glenda Jackson. Um, and she, along with her sister, they both fall in love with these two. Um, friends in this small English mining town and the two couples then basically just spend the whole movie discussing the many complexities of passion and love and their various forms. It's a very like kind of snooty highbrow British film in that regard but also very progressive um, in what it showed on the screen. This movie is famous for featuring uh, nude male wrestling scene between the two men that wait, the sisters wait, develop wait, wait, a romance what? with. What? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Hold on. Hold on. Do, do you I see why go, I was uh, so excited? I need to, talk to go about watch this? this immediately. Now get this. Did you though, say nude male, male wrestling? Full on. I'm talking full frontal male nudity in the flesh. You see, on I am screen. on. I'm on board with that. It's been a long quarantine, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, mind you, too, this is male nudity between Alan Bates and Oliver Reed, who our listeners should know from two years ago. And Oliver, he's Stryker uh, in the movie. So you see these two kind of go at it in a very, very homoerotic way. 
Um, I mean, so what other way that was, would we do it? Yes, totally. <laughs> but also, but like you know what I mean? It's not just filmed as like gay baiting. It actually these two characters do have a homosexual relationship as well. So they're you know they're not just using it to draw people in. Like come watch our movie, you can see a penis. You know, no, there actually is some characterization as to why this does actually happen in the film. And that's what I think is really interesting about this movie is we're, you know, we're in 1970, right? We've broken the production code. We can show things and talk about things in film finally that we haven't been able to or could only allude to in the past. And here, again, coming from a British film, we get homosexuality actually touched upon. Now, mind you, it's still in like a very like self-hatred um, and kind of terrified way of discussing homosexuality on screen, which becomes the norm um, with gay representation mm-hmm. in decades mm-hmm. since this movie as well. But I think it's important to highlight that this is one of the first movies where I've heard and seen a man say to another man, I love you, I want to be in a relationship with you. And that kind of mm-hmm. caught me off guard. I was, I was unexpected for that part of the film. Now, my actual thoughts on the movie. Again, as you said, Ken Russell film, we can expect that this isn't going to be anything straightforward or entirely lucid, and it's not. This is very much a movie of its time that, you know, late 1960s, 70s, we use the term psychedelic a lot because that's kind of how you kind of need to explain these sort of weirdly muddled films, you know, that seems like their only purpose in being made is to talk about sexuality, finally. Uh, But this film comes across a bit masturbatory as well, as I said earlier, kind of on the snooty side. Um, Just as in, like, nobody really talks like this in real life or discusses love and passion in the ways these characters are, unless maybe you're talking to your therapist. I don't know. But these characters do it in a way that, like, makes them liberated. And I guess that's the point, is Mm. sexually liberating these characters. Which is also, I guess, in a form, sexually liberating the film industry in general, too. But in its whole, I don't really buy into it. I think it's very unrelatable as far as today's content goes. But yeah, I just want to highlight that this is... We're we're beginning to discuss homosexuality in movies. (laughs) And I think that's fascinating. And here we get a yeah. great scene of two men <laughs> naked and wrestling, wrestling each other. <laughs> and it, it sounds like a much, much better representation than we got it than we got it. Uh than we got um <laughs> last year where we, we had uh, mm-hmm. um uh as we discussed last week, something that uh mixed me- mixed messages, um let's just yes. put it that way. Um, but that's, I mean, it's interesting. This is, I mean, 50 years ago, um, and we're seeing, uh, the effects of, I, I guess, Stonewall already creeping in to, oh, uh, yeah, for sure. to movies, you know, um, cause Stonewall was 1969. So, um, you're right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, uh, so this is where the gay liberation movement really begins you know Mm -hmm. um and this is the same year that we have the first uh uh gay uh uh pride parade so um right 19 yeah that that does that is yeah that helps to put it contextually in the world of where we're at too and that that makes a lot of sense yeah i believe my of course it's correct there because we got 
1969 is Stonewall, and then 1970 they mark Stonewall's anniversary by having the first I think gay you're pride right. parade. And then yeah. uh, other cities follow suit in the years to come. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I mean, at, you know, at, you and I are are experts on <laughs> on gayness. <laughs> <laughs> well, we try to be. be. <laughs> um, at least in at least in Hollywood film. Um, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, well, that is really really interesting. I'm I'm gonna have to check out Women in Love. Check um, it out. It's a trip. It is a trip for sure. <laughs> how do you feel about Glenda Jackson's Oscar there? I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't think she deserves oh. to win at all. <laughs> can I? Can we just briefly note here? Glenda Jackson um, is one of the few people to have the triple crown of acting. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, considered, of course, an Emmy, a Grammy, and an Oscar. Not a Grammy. An Emmy, a Tony, a Tony. and an Oscar. Um, yeah. Of course, if you add the Grammy to it, you get yourself an EGOT. Um, and very, very few people have the EGOT. But uh, there are um, a select number of people who have the Triple Crown. And Glenda Jackson's one of them. And she took many, many years to get her Triple Crown because she only won her Tony... Uh, a couple of years ago right. um so she um she only recently became a uh, a triple crown person of course the mm-hmm. first person to get the triple crown i'm about to make such a good transition oh, I can't oh my goodness um sam just like i just want you to just sit for a moment and appreciate okay. what's about to happen the first person to get the triple crown of acting was actually Helen Hayes. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we love um, it. Okay, tell me about Helen Hayes, Rand. <laughs> <laughs> Helen Hayes, who has made a previous appearance on this podcast because she won her first Oscar in 1932, and she represents the person with the longest gap between Oscar wins. Mm-hmm. Um, she won her first Oscar in 1932, and uh, she then did not win another Oscar until she won Best Supporting Actress, the first actor to win in both actor and supporting categories, um, which this Oscar win, of course, came uh, nearly 40 years later. So um, 39 years later, exactly. Um, so this is the longest gap between um, your first and second Oscar. And I guess the longest gap between first and last Oscar. Um, although one day Meryl Streep will, will beat that. Oh, come on, why? Her. Again. You know? But, whatever. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we all know a fourth one's coming someday. Um, <laughs> man, I, yeah. I hope I didn't jinx it. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. uh, but, uh, she won her Oscar in 1932. Uh, she then won a Tony in 1947. Of course, Helen Hayes was better known as a stage actress than she was as a film actress. And then she won an Emmy, uh, in 1953. Um, mm-hmm. interestingly, this is the exact same year that Thomas Mitchell, um, 1953, um, got his triple crown, becoming the first man to get a triple crown of acting. Um, he won his Oscar 
1940 for the film uh, Stagecoach, 1939 Stagecoach, and then he won an Emmy in 1953 and a Tony in 1953, but his uh, award came after Helen Hayes's, so he ended up um, uh, not becoming the first one to win uh, the Triple Crown by uh, the by the run of show in a ceremony <laughs> basically <Right. laughs> um sense. so um anyway just uh just an interesting note we have uh, a triple crown winner in both the actress and supporting actress category this year um, i love that and there there aren't there are not that many um i'm looking at the list right now and um we uh we've only covered um, a couple of people so far who have done it, uh, Paul Schofield, uh, Melvin Douglas, Shirley Booth, Ingrid Bergman, um, are the only other ones that we have covered thus far. Um, oh, excuse me, Rita Marino. Um, yes. Uh, oh, and uh, hold on, Maureen Stapleton and Anne Bancroft, but all of them do it later. So, right. Um, yep, there, so there we haven't gotten to their Oscars covered. yet. Uh but um oh and maggie smith okay so there are quite a few that we've covered already i'm sorry um (laughs) (laughs) most of them take a while to get there but glenda jackson is the one to most recently complete the triple crown when she won her tony in 2018 so gotcha um of course she has two oscars um which is also very rare category of people um Mm -hmm. so that'll be interesting to cover um the only other thing that I would like to spotlight this year um, is that we have the most honored documentary this year. Ever. Yes. Um, the only documentary uh, to get three nominations. Um, it also, uh, Woodstock is the documentary. It also was nominated for Best Film Editing and best uh sound um and it won best documentary feature which i think is interesting because at this point you know 1971 when this 1970 documentary wins um Mm -hmm. we are basically looking at the the end of the the woodstock represents as much as it represents the height of the hippie era movement it also represents the end of that movement. Um, Yes. Perhaps very tellingly, you know, the Woodstock Festival happened in August of 1969. And um, that festival happened, I believe, just about a week after the Manson murders. Um, And so in a way, um, and the arrest that comes later of the Manson family a lot of people kind of look at as a a sort of end to that free love hippie era because it put such a dark cloud on everything Um, definitely and I think that it's interesting that Woodstock is honored here because perhaps already only a year out from when it was uh, produced it's already an artifact of time and um and a period film already you know definitely um, yeah and, true and so many people who are highlighted in that documentary um will soon be dead um including 
uh, Janice Joplin and um, uh, Mama Cass. Um, actually, I'm not sure Mama Cass is in that. I may be making that up. I don't think she's in it. But she is a representative of that of that time period, you know? Yep. Um, so it's, uh, uh, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting period. And now that I'm thinking about it, Janis Joplin not, might not be in it either, but my, my, <laughs> the point is, <laughs> the point is, um, that, uh, <laughs> the point is that, that, oh no, Janis Joplin is definitely in it. All right. Um, but, uh, the point is the, um, the movement itself is, Yep. is fading and now we're going to be going into the 70s where we're going to be looking at all of these movies that are reflexively uh i think darker and grittier um not only because of the loosening of certain restrictions but also because of the um let's say uh the kind of bitterness that's left over from the end of this free love movement yeah no i'd say you're spot on there absolutely we're we're exiting one era and now we're entering a whole new era and also a new decade at the same time you're right there's a lot of difference between the output of film in the 60s and the output we're going to start talking about in the 70s a notable stylistic change yeah yeah i think a lot of that ties into our best picture winner Shall we move on My to the main event? My goodness, we are, we are just killing it with transitions this episode. <laughs> I mean, like... We are. I love it. These right, segues. Let's talk about, these segues. Let's talk about okay, go ahead. our big winner, Patton. Uh, simply put, this is a biographical war movie about General George S. Patton during World War II as he battles his way from Northern Africa and eventually right up and into Germany. Um, okay, so I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna tell you my thoughts, Rand, then I wanna hear your thoughts. My thoughts, so I don't know about you, but I am starting to get a little tired of all of these World War II films. Do you know what I mean? Like they're just, to me, they're just all starting to look and feel and sound the same. They're all just very pro-America and pro-war, which I know makes sense in the context in World War II. You know, we were the good guys. We were doing good things. We fought for the right reasons. And that should be remembered. That is very important to remember. But where I'm having kind of a, um, a discord with this is that it's hard to stomach that kind of a movie that comes out in 1970 while knowing that American troops are currently in Vietnam fighting for a war that makes absolutely no sense. So it's hard, like, seeing that the difference in here's a very pro-war, World War II heroic film against the backdrop of current 1970s politics of get us the fuck out of Vietnam. Viet fucking You know, it's, it's such a weird thing to be caught in the middle of and i'm wondering do you, do you kind of ha- share the same viewpoint well you know it's interesting because we have um we have mash this year too which we talked about a second ago um yep. which i think mash might be more looked at as like a 
a, a movie that is more of the moment and that it yeah. is about the Korean War, but it's it's a far more comedic um, uh, anti-war film, right? You know, um, in a in a comedic way. Um, but uh, I think uh, so. I think that's more reflective of what the general opinion might have been. Um, but uh, it, it's also interesting because I I don't find. It, it patents like I, I was watching it and I, I didn't feel like it was pro-war or anti-war. I, I thought it was almost just like, um, it, it was just a weird, it was, it's a very dark film um, mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, I, I mean, like the whole movie starts with this, you know, now iconic um, speech uh, that George C. Scott gives in front of um, a huge American flag. And you have, I guarantee you, you've seen the still of this before at some point in your life um, mm-hmm. because it's an iconic shot. But um, his entire tone, his entire being is so consumed by battle and he talks so nonchalantly about killing you know, and he, there's this whole episode where he um, slaps a soldier and uh, who's shell-shocked and ends up getting um, reprimanded. And uh, the movie is sending me, and I think that maybe, I think this is intentional because I think this is supposed to try to capture what the complicated nature of, what a war hero is okay Mm, because ultimately a war hero is a killing hero um that and that's what i find interesting about this movie is that it doesn't shy away from the contradictions and it doesn't necessarily tell you how to feel about this person so i see what you're saying about like america's great you know like rah rah whatever um but I don't think the message of the movie's quite that simple. I think that mm. that's the reading, you know, like I read this was Richard Nixon's favorite movie and he screened it a bunch of times in the White House. Right. Um, but I don't necessarily know if Richard Nixon would get the same message out of it that uh, George C. Scott was going for as he was studying the character. Or I see what um, you're saying. The yeah. director was shooting for while he was while he was shooting the movie. I I think that there, I think there's a real heavy, you know, and the movie itself it contradicts itself. You know, like uh, Carl Malden, his character, at one point seems quite disgusted with General Patton, and at other points seems quite uh, admirous of him. You know, mm-hmm. um, so. Uh, and I, I think, I, and I, I struggle with it because I think that actually may be what it's going for. I think the the movie isn't telling us what to feel, and that's sure. kind of what's uh, uncomfortable about it. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Patton is this is definitely like a as character study you can get with a war film, you know. And I think, I think you're right. I think the direction of this movie and what they were going for was trying to paint a very um, contradictive and um, complex 
version of what these generals were like during the war. And especially with Patton, who it seems like his, he had one focus in life, one goal, and that was to win in battle. And when he wasn't doing battle, wasn't killing the enemy, he was incredibly depressed and um, irritative um, and whatnot. And I think you're right. It comes down to, there are a couple of quotes and takeaways from the very end of the film, which I think speak to what you're getting at, uh, which is where at the very end, once the Nazis have been invaded in Germany and they're burning all their papers, trying to get away, one of them talks about Patton and observes that it is the absence of war that will kill General Patton. Um, meaning that when there's nothing left to fight for, he will have nothing left to live for. And it ends up being really spot on and true. You know, even after the war is over, it seems like Patton can't stop fighting. He picks a fight with the Russians after the Germans have been defeated, which then gets America into even more trouble, you know? And uh, at the very end of the film, they run a, a quote across the screen, which just says, all glory is fleeting. And I wonder if what they're getting at here is what kind of glory is really worth it. You know, if you're living to yeah. be glorified on a battlefield in war yes. and killing people, what's the point? You know? <laughs> and yeah. I suppose that's it, kind of the, the, yeah, the sobering effect this movie can have on you. So you're right. This movie, I guess, is more anti-war than I think I initially thought. Yeah, I think the I think this may be representative of where uh, you know I was talking about this kind of negative attitude that seems to be sweeping uh, America at this point in time, where our movies are getting darker and um, you know the entire the hope of the the uh, of the post World War II generation is um, being displaced, and the and the freedom of the free love movement is being displaced with a kind of um, cynicism. And I think that this movie uh, very much, I think it's very a very cynical film. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's the way that I saw it. Now, that said, it's still a war movie with a lot of battle sequences, and I, I've seen enough of that for one lifetime. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not my... Um, you know, my my favorite World War II movie is still, you know, the best years of our lives, which isn't, which is about post-World War II and about soldiers, you know, trying to reconcile life back in the homeland. Um, exactly. And, well, that one's and about I find humanity, right? It's about humanity. Um, and yeah. war movies are always a tough sell for me because I am not a huge proponent of war and i also um even though i do think world war ii was very necessary for obvious reasons um but i i think the message that's going that's getting through here does ultimately kind of maybe support my my viewpoint and that uh war war has no glory in the end you know, there exactly yes. There are casualties on all sides, even when uh, one side wins. Um, and General Patton, interestingly, is so distant from that recognition that he um, he can't understand 
you know, he doesn't, it's so interesting that he um, attacks the soldier who's been shell-shocked, you know, but the truth is his reaction is just um, an example of his own internal damage, you know? True. He's looking, he's probably looking at his own, um, his own, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, his own, like his own oh, fears, gee. seeing it. His own fears, his own damage is the only word I can think of. I was trying to think of something smarter. Trauma. Come to me later. Trauma. There we go. He's looking at his own <laughs> trauma. That's the word I was looking for. In the face. Um, yeah. And definitely, and slapping and it, because, right? <laughs> and slapping it because I, I think Literally. the kid is representing something in him that he doesn't want to look at. You know. Absolutely. Um, so True. I mean, I have to, I have to respect the film because I think it is hitting a lot of levels. I completely understand why it wins Best Picture, and I, as I've established, I have no other stake in the game here. So I mean, <laughs> I, that's true. I, I was going to say, okay is this with, your? Is there a different? Film it's in like my de facto. It's like my <laughs> de facto Best Picture winner because I care so little about this year in general. So, um, yeah, I kind of have to agree with you there. There's really isn't another movie that I'm super pulling for Patton. Yeah. Patton makes sense. I get it. Again, I liked the movie fine. It's not one of my favorites, but probably just because I'm getting a little tired of seeing 40, 50 year old men just trying to outshine each other on a battlefield. I'm just so sick of that, you know, but, but I do like the more character, elements of this film when it does get put in now does this movie warrant a three-hour runtime i don't think so i think we kind of get who he is early enough to where they could have capped this at two hours you know we don't need to see all the battles we don't need to see every conversation (laughs) you know (laughs) there's a lot that we could have gone without um i will uh i will say that, you know, probably if we had not watched all of the different war movies that we've watched over the last however many years, <laughs> then right. maybe if we weren't watching these in such close succession as opposed to them just coming out over time, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't yeah, no, you're seem right. you're as, right. as, as if we were getting bombarded by them as if we were the victims of a general Patton-led attack. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, I feel like, for me personally, this movie is most similar to Lawrence of Arabia. It feels very similar, right? We're kind of painting these war generals to be more complicated men, and both kind of having a bit of a sour conclusion about war. You know, like we had talked about, this one is... Is there any glory in Lawrence war? Do wars just start other movie, wars? But... Yeah, right? Yeah. So I think the two the two to me stick out as almost like companion pieces of two different generals, uh, or two different versions of wartime generals. Well, I think Lawrence of Arabia is the better movie, and, and Lawrence is probably the better man, you know, better person. Wouldn't yeah, you say? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I see that, um, yeah. No, definitely, yeah. I think a lot of the structure is the same, too, in the fact that, you know, the movie, you know, Lawrence of Arabia starts out with uh, an incident that's um, unconnected to the timeline of the rest of the movie. 
you know? Um, yep. And and then Patton starts out with an incident that is technically out of the main timeline of the movie and then yep. goes back, you know? Um, so even the structure is kind of similar. Um, yeah, very similar, right? Uh, I will say one element of the movie that I was particularly impressed with, I thought the score was great. Yes, I agree. And very memorable. I thought the score like was it, wonderful, yeah. It, it stayed with me. I thought it was a... And also, I can't... I mean, like, this was apparently um, one of the last movies shot in uh, the Todd A.O. Uh, 70mm process uh, before oh, it was okay. just kind of retired. Um, and you can... I mean, like, the the whoever i'm sure this movie has been cleaned up and restored and and whatnot but it is it is a sight for the eyes it is an absolute um the higher resolution of that 70 millimeter does not go to waste in the era of hd because it is um a stunning uh photographic feat um yes there are a a lot of really great shots um no, no, hardly any women to speak of, but a lot of great. <laughs> I think that's the other. That is my true. other issue. My other issue it with is a lot a of man's these types of picture, movies is I, I. I think we both respond to, um. Uh, more female energy. Um, <laughs> yes. More. Like I, I prefer more estrogen in my. In my yes. movies. Um. I feel like uh, I'm a little tired of, of so much testosterone. Yes, but when you have a, an academy that is strictly, at this point in time, definitely true, run by straight white men, that's what you're going to get a lot of. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and an industry on top of that, because um, let, let's, let's keep in mind here, I, there was a point in time... Uh, where women were considered, you know, a valid audience to cater films toward. Um, right. And uh, after war, World War II, that that really started to kind of slowly chip away. Because, um, I mean, during the 40s, a lot of the reason that was happening is because there was a disproportionate number of women here compared to men because so many men were off fighting battles. Um and women were, you know, holding down the home front, and so a lot more movies, and going to work for the first time, um, uh, a lot of them for the first time, I should, I should say, and really gaining more stock in society, um, you know, more of the equality that they should have, um, and then that immediately regressed after World War II, and we went into this period of traditional quote-unquote values, um, and with traditional values came, um, a, a kind of regression <laughs> of women's rights that continues, um, until the women's lib movement, which we are about to happen upon in the 1970s. But unfortunately, movies stay largely testosterone-fueled, um, for quite a while, uh, we have a we have a lot a lot of male energy films. In fact, I, you know, we're looking at the nineteen seventies ahead of us, and I don't, I don't want to uh, 
disappoint you in any way, shape, or form, but I don't think this entire decade we are going to get um, a woman with the biggest part in any of the Best Picture films. No, you would be correct. We are... You're you're right. You're absolutely right. We are coming into a very... As we mentioned there's before, one, the 70s... There's one that's named after the female character, but she doesn't have the largest part in the film. Correct. <laughs> yes. La-di-da, la-di-da, la-la, yeah. <laughs> that's true. And especially in our... What we're going to get into for our next episode. Let's just break this down here. 1971, we'll be talking about next week. The winner, The French Connection. Um, again, a very... I don't know. This, I feel like The French Connection is a great representation of what the 1970s has to offer for movies. A very gritty crime cop thriller. Very man-heavy, um, <laughs> you know, filmed on the streets. It's very that. <laughs> I know it has a. I have not seen the French Connection. I'm, I am looking forward to seeing it. I know um, mm-hmm. the director is, uh, of course, um, Friedkin, right? William um, Friedkin, yes. William Friedkin, um, who I actually have uh, had the distinct honor of meeting. Um, oh, I love that. So, I know, humble brag. Um, humble brag. Humble brag. Um, and his filmography is is really interesting, so we'll have to... Mm-hmm. Um, we don't get many other opportunities to talk about him through the Academy lens, so we'll have to uh, go into a full discussion of him um, and his uh, diverse, varied um, history. Um, Absolutely. Uh, next week. Uh, but um, And, of course, he's also... The other thing I know about William Friedkin that I find so fascinating is that um, he is uh, married um, to none other than Sherry Lansing, um, which mm. always, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Interesting. As in form, uh, head of Paramount or former head of Paramount, Sherry Lansing. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, I look forward to, I know there's a car, a car chase. Gene Hackman, mm-hmm. William Friedman, Freakin directed. That's all I know going in. Um, and my dad said it was pretty good. And my dad doesn't like <laughs> a lot of a lot of gritty movies. So it, I mean, you know what? There you go. For all any Best Picture winner, this one has got to be the most dad approved. I love that. Well, I'm excited to hear your thoughts and to talk more about this year next week. So join us then, everybody, as we talk about 1971.